the National Archives podcast series, Living in a Railway Town, presented by Di Drummond, as part of the Railways Change Lives Conference. Uh, Living in a Railway Town. One of the key things here is, is that I will be mentioning other railway towns, but I'm really focusing in on Crewe, which is where I was brought up. But as you've heard, it's also the subject of my PhD and my first book, Work done some time ago, as you would presume, from publication in 1995. So one of my key questions is, is what is a railway town? I've got two definitions from Jack Simmons. It's a town where the railway, either one company or several, came to be the most powerful employer. And then Simmons goes into a little bit more detail and says... It's also a town developed by the railways for their own purposes, either from nothing, or very nearly nothing, as in the case of Crewe, or by the addition of a new industrial plant to an existing market town. Uh, Swindon would be an example of this. And that this addition being so large that it engulfs the older place and makes a combined settlement town that is dominated by the railway. So in other words, we're talking about towns that were either created or very much extended by the railway and the railway enterprise. And this is where I'll show you a table of some of those towns and the different railway companies that set them up. And that I always say that I think that this is not the definitive list, you will always find somebody in the audience who will say, what about so-and-so? But you will notice that apart from places like Shildon, Wolverton, Crewe, Swindon, Stratford and so forth, if we go on, we've got the wonderful Melton Constable, okay? <laughs> and you will also note that the towns are founded at various points and various dates. So, for instance, the most recent one, Eastleigh, a town which was established because the workshops were moved out from in London, Nine Elms and so forth. So that's the range of railway towns. And you can see one of the key things about them is, is that they're almost like shock towns. The po populations are drawn in or actually taken in because they're founded around workshops and also other railway employment. And they grow spectacularly. I'm afraid I think the noughts dropped off as far as Wolverton is concerned. But you can see that what we have got here are towns which grew phenomenally during the 19th century and in the instance of Eastley, early 20th century as well, because of railways. And some of the aspects of everyday life in a railway town, uh, and I'm saying especially crew, really come from research in the National Archives and also material that we've got here, National Railway Museum search engine. Beauty of the National Archives is that they have got railway company records. Practically, well, every railway company, every set of company records, you have to really work through this to find out how different railway companies merge with others. And there's a plethora for each company of different committee minutes. There's very interesting detailed material, but there's also other things, like, for instance, registers for employees, not just those who worked in the different workshops, but on the main line and so forth. Rail 410, 1905 to 1914, 
uh, codes for the crew works registers, which I used an awful lot in my research and appear in the books. But in addition to that, you've got company drawings and plans. You've got publications that appear in the railway company archives. Railway company photographs, huge collection here at the NRM. Wonderful photographs on very large glass plates from the 19th century. And then we've got contemporary publications which give us descriptions of the towns, the workplaces, even details inside the works. And then don't forget, we've got physical evidence, artefacts from the locomotives to the pay tokens that were used. So there's physical evidence everywhere. There's physical evidence in the railway towns if local authorities have not demolished them or forgotten about them. Uh, I was thinking about this about crew the other day, what remains? And the answer to that is very little. Some rows of railway cottages, you can see where parts of the works have been, you can see walls which are on the edge of the different parts of the works and then some of the remaining plant that is there. So, lots of evidence, plans and photographs, contemporary newspapers, takes me to, well, what was life? like in the railway town of Crewe. Just to give you a flavour, here is Crewe. Crewe station is down here. So this is looking north. This is the what was known as the Spider Bridge, which was the connection between the Crewe station, this part of the works, which is the original works, built in 1842-1843 with a clock tower there. And then you've got other sections of the works. Up this way, you've got the deviation works, which was put up in the 1860s, and beyond that, steel works end again, 1860s. You can see lots of chimneys. And then, just there, you can see Christchurch, the original parish church, which was built and provided for by the railway company, the Grand Junction Railway, and then the London North Western. I seem to remember when I was a child that there used to be a tin blood and custard notice outside of Christchurch, so the London Northwestern Railway Company uh, colours. We can also get a vision of early crew from contemporary illustrated publications like the Illustrated London News. Crew's birthday party in December 1843. They've got the bunting out. Later on in the evening they had a wonderful high tea for all the workers and their sweethearts and wives, as they are termed, in one of the erecting shops right on the edge of the original town. So Crewe is re referred to as a mechanical settlement in an agricultural district. It is very much like that for a long time. Swindon has got something of the same sort of feel about it, although Swindon was built on in addition to an existing settlement. So here's Swindon Railway Station. 1845 and here is Swindon settlement and as you can see it's very much in a rural setting lots of neat cottages Cotswold stone look very nice indeed so you've got this vision of this new settlement what about Crewe a new town there were two settlements in the immediate area, Church Coppenall and Monks Coppenall, but they were very thinly populated and have been depopulating for some time. So it's a new town that was provided initially by the railway company, and it literally came to life in 
March 1843, when 221 working men, wives and children in addition to that, were brought from the old Grand Junction Railway Company works at Edge Hill near to Liverpool out to this new site. It's a young town, and I mean that by the age range within the town consists of mostly younger people, young men and their families coming in to this new place. It's a town of immigrants for quite some time period. As you can see, 1861, 82% of the population was born outside of the town. 1881, it's only gone down to 67%. It changes somewhat after that, but this is a town of immigrants. And when I say that, I mean immigrants from all over the British Isles. So here we have a quote from Chambers, Edinburgh Journal, 1850. The people of Crewe come from the four divisions of the United Kingdom. One could hear the slow, deliberate speech of the Scotsman, the rich brogue of the Irishman, and the quick, sharp utterances of the Welshman. Again, very stereotypical about visions of where people came from, but through my work on analysing the census enumerators' household surveys, the reports that Rudy was referring to are not detailed enough to find out about crew uh, in its early stages and what was happening there, so you have to take samples and so forth. What I found out was that there was two patterns of migration to crew, and this lasted for a long time period. The unskilled tended to come from the areas immediately round crew, and there were often agricultural labourers who were moving in to find more consistent, better paid work. And quite often you can follow where the children have been born in different villages around and about the town, so it's almost like they gradually make their way to crew. The skilled workers come directly from the centres that are important for the particular skills. So fitters, turners, the fitter erectors who put, a, put the locomotives together, they tended to come from centres that were already building locomotives, so places like Manchester, other parts of Lancashire. Those who worked in the metal industry, so not just the foundry, but you also get steel rolling mills in the 1860s, they tend to come from places like Staffordshire, North Wales, and later on South Wales. So you have got this different backgrounds and different uh, places where people originated from. And what is interesting about that is, is that they do move in and they form kinship groups within the town. So they tended to live in close proximity. People who came from one place would live on one street and from another would come from another street. So you got that persistently. But once they got to the town, they were expected to live by the rules of the London and North Western Railway Company. So here we have them. Each person is to devote himself exclusively to the company's service attending during the regulation hours of the day and residing wherever he may be required. And that's more for those who are working on the permanent way, the railway workers, because they could be required to move from one end of the railway system, the railway company system, to the other. I have an account of one man who was disobedient and got exiled, as far as he was concerned, to Carlisle. So... Is to obey promptly all instructions he may receive from persons placed in authority over him by the directors and conform to all regulations of the company. And if you lived in a company cottage, they could come around and make sure your house was neat and clean. And that was part of the company rules. 
He will be liable to immediate dismissal for disobedience of orders, negligence, misconduct and incompetency. There are also another set of rules which were enforced in the railway workshops themselves. So you could be dismissed for doing your own work, producing things from railway company material in railway company time. Although I said last week, when we first moved to Korea in the 1960s, if you wanted a poker for your fire, the only place you could get it was go and find a worksman and say, please make me one of these. Every person receiving a uniform must be appeared on duty clean and neat and if any article provided by the company shall be improperly used or damaged the party will be required to make good so it's a place of rules and regulations but quite often because the pride that these men had in their works both in the works and on the permanent way they were quite happy to adhere to these rules it wasn't just because it kept your job it was also because it was part of your value system and ethos just to give you a flavour of this place as a community, this is the monster party that was held in the 1880s. You can see it's part of the works. I suspect it's the erecting shop that was uh, right beside the original railway colony. I can tell that by that particular ironwork just underneath the windows there. Uh, but as you can see, it's all decked out for celebration and these are working people being waited on must be quite a, an original experience at that time period and then we've got an illustration of crew at the jubilee so 50th anniversary of the start of the town and they're celebrating also the production of the thousandth locomotive from crew works so it's a town which is very much centered around the works and as i said it's an originally a model town these are photographs of some of the original railway company cottages and houses. They were quite well appointed, particularly from the time period. And there is uh, a historian of Chartism who said that there was a slogan in Crewe, there are no Chartists in Crewe, there are no slums in Crewe. Uh, there were Chartists there, but you had to be quiet about it. <laughs> and here's a view of cottagers really when they were coming to the end of their lifespan uh, early 1960s you can see they're quite dilapidated being ready for demolition and that's the forge and apparently I've been told when the steam hammer was working there that whole section of the town would jump <laughs> so this shows you how much work actually influences where you live I will read a description in a moment, but the original railway housing was supposed to be very hierarchical in its allocation. It didn't work out like that. But the railway foreman in the workshops got a bit iffy about not living next door to their, uh, you know, their inferiors. So this is an extra row which was built in the 1870s known as Gaffer's Row. So, here's a description from 1846. The dwelling houses arrange themselves in four classes. First, the villa-style houses of the superior officers. You'll see a view of the window of one, and they are very superior and large. A kind of ornamental Gothic constitutes the house of the next authority. The engineers are domiciled in detached mansions which accommodate four families, and the last, the labourers' delights in neat cottages of four types. May I point out that those detached mansions that accommodate four families are in fact not just semi-detached, but back-to-back semi-detached. So they're not as wonderful as you might think from their mansion description. This hierarchy of 
different occupations and trades living in different forms of cottages and houses seems to evaporate very quickly. I think it's the 1881 census I discovered living in Gathers Row, a group of musicians including an Italian tambourine player. So, <laughs> And other railway towns had similar sort of hierarchical model housing produced and given to them. So Brunel's design for Swindon and a row of railway cottages there. They do look far superior to the places in Wolverton or in Crewe, but here's a little, just a little factor. Some of these were not houses. They were tenements, so they in effect were flats. So not as luxurious as you might think. That provision of housing in railway towns was very much the initial start-up of the towns. And after that, pri private speculating builders took over. So here we have got a view of the steelworks end of the town. Uh, you can tell that because those four chimneys are part of the Bessemer Furnace. But you can see that there's very much the usual standard, larger Victorian terraced houses round about there. It's works week, they're off. You can tell because no smoke out of the chimney. Yeah, okay. Also to add, that little cone there is a brick-making furnace. Everything you wanted in crew, or some things you didn't want, were made there. Bricks, wooden legs. So if you had a nasty accident, you could have a wooden leg provided for you. Indeed, if you died, they would give you a free deal coffin. Uh, which was nice of them, but practically everything was made there. So here's a description again of Crewe in 1851. 514 houses, one church, three schools, one town hall, all belonging to the company. That developed and grew, and it wasn't just the houses that actually came and uh, became provided individually and privately. The schools there that are mentioned are national schools, so Church of England schools, a lot of the local chapels provided their own schools. One church, there was one Anglican church to start off with, I think there's probably about six by the end of the company's real control. So most of the Anglican churches were provided by the company. But the chapels were usually not. And I'm just emphasising that because that matters later on in the talk. And just to give you an indication of this, a closer, a closer photograph of Christchurch in the 1960s. Uh, and if you look in the National Archive, there's actually plans of the church, including plans of the pews and pew rents. So this notion of having a hierarchical local society, which was quite usual, and pew rents were quite usual, were very much part and parcel of this early vision of what the railway town was going to be. And then later on in the 19th century, you get the provision of this, Queen's Park in Crewe. Uh, and this clock tower has got wonderful decoration referring to locomotives that were made at the works and various individuals at the works. But as I was saying, that not all public buildings, not all housing was provided by the railway company. Here's an example. This is a mechanics institute in a forlorn state in the 1960s. And then over here we have got the market hall and the town hall. Market hall from the 1840s, but provided by an individual, not the railway company. I think I'll just read you one of these quotations, and it's from Alfred Williams. 
Alfred Williams' life in a railway factory, which is about Swindon. But it really gives you a flavour of how the day-to-day -day life in railway towns such as Crewe and Swindon were very much orientated around what was happening at the works and also uh, on the railway. So at 10 minutes to 6, the hooter sounds a second time. Then again at 5 minutes and finally at 6 o'clock. The time it makes a double report in order that the men may be sure that it is the last at hooter. Five minutes grace from 6 till 6.5 is allowed in the morning. After that, everyone except clerks must lose time. You'll get docked quarter of a day's pay for being five minutes late. As soon as the 10 minute hooter sounds, the men come teeming out of the various parts of the town in great numbers. And by five minutes to six, the streets leading to the entrances are packed with dense crowd of men and boys, old and young, bearded and beardless, some firm and upright, others beaten and stooping, pale and haggardly looking, all off to the same daily toil and fully intent on the labour before them. This description really summarises how the hooter at this point, steam gong earlier on, of the works governed everybody's life in a railway town. Uh, the tokens that you were passing around, each man would have a token like that. He would go into the works, he would go into the, get one of the gates, and he would be required to hang his token on a board with hooks to indicate that he'd arrived at work. And the clerks would come round and check to make sure you know, people had come in, dot the pay of those who hadn't come in. Meanwhile, back in the town, Wives and children have had to really structure their day around dad and possibly older sons and brothers getting up and going to the works. It structures the day later on if they come home for breakfast or for lunch and so forth. It signals the end of the day. And all of this is based around what's happening at the works. And obviously other workers, those who work on the railway permanent way, the shifts that men had to work and wives are having to really adjust family life to changing shifts. So I'll give you a view of the development of the works and how it's really interconnected with crew as a railway town. This gives you the actual number of people working in the works. I got this from one of the railway works employees registers that I referred to before, but it doesn't. It's not that accurate. I suspect that probably by 1911 that nearly twice as many men are working in the works than are featured here. And it's for all sorts of reasons, including things in various areas like subcontracting. But you can see that you've got a large workforce in crew works. And then if you add to that the number of people, the number of men and a few women who are working on the railway, this is a very much railway-dominated town as far as employment is concerned. It's less so as time goes on. So here we have got the population of crew as it goes up from 1840s up through to 1911. And here we have got some of the indicators of the numbers working in the works. And obviously the town needs people who will run shops, different services and so on. But there's still huge reliance on railway work and you can see this from this graph the blue indicates the transport workers the railway workers and the yellow the men of the works and you can see that over 90 percent of the town the male household heads are employed by the railways 
in uh, 1851. And what's surprising about it is, is that while it's gone down considerably, it's still 50% or so in 1901, and not much less than that in 1991, despite the fact that the 1980s saw the gradual closure of different sections of crew works. That's going to look very different if we take it to 2011, 2013. Not as good a set of maps as Rudy produces, but just to give you sort of an idea of the form of uh, crew, six railway lines coming in, stationed to the south, and then you've got the original works and the original railway colony in that angle between the Chester line and the Manchester line. And then gradually you've got the growth of railway enterprise across crew. So you've got along the Chester line, which seems to be the Chester line, so they had a line which actually served the different sections of crew works. You have got what was known as the deviation works and then steel works. And then you've got steam sheds, roundabout station, and indeed, uh, so that's Mill Street and so forth, Basford Goods Depot, which is the projected station for HS2, if it's built. Uh, yes. Okay. Life in the works. I've already said that we can recreate this from a whole plethora of material at the National Archives, of photographs and so forth, but also from workers' and families' memoirs and early film. Bioscope did a whole series of films within different railway workshops, including Crewe and Swindon, and those are available at the British Film Institute. So I've already started by telling you a little bit about the working day, the reporting for work. Initially, as uh, Alfred Williams is saying, 6am, Working late, working till 6pm, possibly later, working on Saturday mornings until you get into the 1870s. Everything in your life when you were in the works was controlled by those little tokens that you're passing around. So, for instance, when you went to lunch, somebody took your token. Uh, you were discouraged from going home or elsewhere for your lunch Usually you were expected to take it in a canteen and that became a point of, if you like, political independence to actually take lunch in the works with your workmates. Going to the loo, you had to give a token to a man at the entrance to the lavatories. Quite often one poor chap who'd lost his arm in the strapping that worked the machinery and they would monitor how long you were in there for. What else about life in the works? Well, these company, company records at the National Archives are so rich, you can find out about management, the relationship between the management and men, the industrial relations, how they change, how the labour processes and the production processes change, but also factors like payment, different forms of piecework payment, which actually determined how fast you had to work what you got paid for each piece of work you produced. And somebody said that they had a relative who was a clerk in one of the workshops. And this is the sort of thing that the clerks would be compiling. They would be actually detailing the price of different jobs, how long things took, where the men were, where they were working and so forth. There was also very much a management ethos and structure within the works not just because that was true of the railway industry as a whole, but because they were trying to really 
impress upon the workers and get their workers to subscribe to this notion we are producing this leading example of 19th early 20th century technology the locomotive and all the accoutrements that railways needed the pride that they wanted to engender in that was very important because it really really married lots of people to the railway company they became loyal to the company through the pride that they had in their own work we can also find out from these railway company employee registers the structure and the form of the workshop uh, workforce in each workshop there's a terrific number of different trades and occupations employed on railways and in works and uh, you can actually find out how different workshops functioned what they did um, and how they were managed and then we've got interesting things about the management and the personnel of the management and particularly in the case of crew Francis William Webb but we can see the detail of this down to the individual foreman and individual workplace teams like erecting gangs those who were the skilled men who put the locomotive together and I'll be talking about that in a minute the other thing that you get a lot of information about not just in the railway company archives which really record every single machine tool that is brought into crew works there is a particular machine which is now in the Manchester Museum of Technology which was transferred from Edge Hill into Crewe in 1843 and was used until Crewe works closed practically but you've got details of the different types of machines that we're using how the production process and the technologies of the process has changed and you can see here's an illustration from 1849 various uh, milling machines and, uh, and uh, lathes I'll go into de detail of this in the book and here we've got wheel lathes and so forth and you can see the drive strapping that I was talking about straps leather straps connected up to the drive shafts up in the roof and these were connected through to stationary steam engines which drove all the machinery uh, I was just saying the illustrated London news is interesting but it's not always accurate for example this person here is uh, an accident that inevitably will happen so and then we've got illustrations like this this is a photograph in the National Railway Museum collection this is one of the superior mansions that the officers of the company lived in in this instance it's Francis William Webb when he was works manager He's standing in front of the open window in his own home and here we have got a bust of Stevenson and Richard Trevizic. And then all these gentlemen here are foremen of the different shops in crew works. So you can see, we can see who these, what these men look like. We can also, through the registers, actually work out which workshop and which teams of men they were uh, foremen of. So, for instance, this gentleman here is George Potty, and you'll see George Potty in a minute or two at a later date. And then, this isn't from the National Archives or the NRM, this is actually from Cheshire Record Office, and this is a memorial given to John Ramsbottom, Chief Mechanical Engineer from the 1850s through to 1871, and it's a mark of respect from the workforce and you can see it's really nicely uh, illuminated and it says at the end your obedient servants 
So that sense of respect for superiors. And here we have Mr Potty again. This is a goods locomotive which was built in the 1870s in 25.5 hours by these two teams of workers. Those on this side, and you can tell it from the tools that they have, particularly the little boys who've got long nose pliers, these little boys are the rivet heaters. They took the rivets to the boiler makers to actually use to rivet the plates of the boilers inside this locomotive together. And then this group over here, they are the fitter erectors who finally put the entire locomotive together. Potty was their foreman. Again, you've got the tools which will indicate what they are up to and what they're doing. Uh, you'll notice how young some of these are. Others are considerably older. They've got beards, even quite long ones. This gentleman here is Bowen Cook, who became chief mechanical engineer in the 1900s, and that was when he was a premium apprentice in the works. So we've got a real vision of life in the works. And that was an ever-changing vision because the labour process and the production process has changed. So this is from about 1910, and you can see what they have got in effect is a continuous, not a belt, quite a belt system, but a stage-by-stage -stage system of putting the locomotives together. I've already hinted that while the railway company was very important in crew, very important not just to management but also to employees and also to their families. When I speak in crew, I do sometimes feel, oh, it might be an insult to people, it's a bit like what did the Romans ever do for us and a whole list of things, schools, churches, work, gas works come out. But for others, there is a problem as far as the railway company is concerned. And that is that the railway companies traditionally don't like trade unions. They don't tend to like anybody who's of a radical political persuasion, or indeed in the case of crew and a few other railway towns, anybody who has a different political position to them. And this is where I come to my final point, and that is the intimidation affairs of 1884-85 and 1889-1889. And this will be of interest to you, to particularly those who are interested in the railway police, but I might get on the wrong side of you in a minute or two. Crewe, like many other constituencies during this time period, although it had a huge dominance of working-class people, very few of those working-class men, of course, had the vote until you got to the 1880s or even... 1918. In Crewe and in other constituencies, this was improving from 1867 and the real change came in 1884-85. And it came not just because the requirements, the qualifications that you had, like property and so forth, in order to actually vote in a parliamentary election was reduced, but also because they redrew the constituency boundaries. So 1885 was the first parliamentary election in which a majority of men in the works and a lesser majority of men working on the London North Western Railway Company actually had the parliamentary vote. 
It takes on a different complexion in other railway towns, but in Crewe, what happens is, is that the local conservative company gives up the unequal struggle and becomes the independent railway company party. And it is strongly suggested to the men of the works, those who have the vote, that it would be very much in their own interests to vote for that particular political party. And what you get in the intimidation affairs of 1884-85 is accusations that a large number of men of the works who were known to be liberal nonconformists, because those two persuasions often went together, that a large number of them have either been coerced and intimidated by their foreman. It was alleged that foremen stood outside of polling stations saying to these men as they went in, remember which side your bread is buttered on. Or indeed were en masse sacked. Mr Gladstone intervened, he wrote a letter to the Times. There was a lot of accusation and counter-accusation within the town. If you look at the crew works registers you cannot see, as the local liberals were uh, actually saying, 200 men being forced out of the works. But what you can see is approximately 200 men actually leaving the employment of the works over a longer time period. And you can certainly see a group who were known as the Blue Ribbon Gang being forced out of work very rapidly in quick succession. The Blue Ribbon Army was a gospel temperance movement that was very strong in crew. It was actually based in America, but had become very strong in crew because it was interested not just in the gospel and temperance, but employer issues and employment issues. They worked together actually erecting some of the most prestigious locomotives. Uh, I think a lot of other people didn't want to work with them because they were so nonconformist, you know, anti-drink and so forth, so they upset a lot of people. You certainly can see them being discharged from the works. So one of the key things that you're seeing there is, is that the power of railway companies in railway towns could really affect the political position as an experience in the town. As I say, it takes on different complexion in other railway towns. Derby, it was the foremen who were influencing their workmen for their own ends. What resulted from the first intimidation affair was very much a stalemate. But in 1889, there was a second intimidation affair. That year, there was an Employers' Liability Act passed. But firms were allowed to opt out of it if a majority of their workforce took part in a ballot and said that they wanted to remain in their own company scheme. So what happened? The London North Western Railway Company allegedly put officers on locomotives moving up and down the line, going and seeing various groups of workers along the line and saying, you better vote to opt out and remain within the company scheme. In addition to this, it is alleged, the railway company had its own police force, precursors of British Transport Police, so this is where I start treading on gentlemen's toes over there. And it is alleged that men who'd been discharged from the works, who set up their own businesses, were being spied upon by detectives of the railway company police force. 
that doesn't have a stalemate. It actually has an outcome. And what happens is, is a group of local Liberals put their money together, buy shares in the London North Western Railway Company and go to a shareholders meeting at Euston, where they denounce Francis William Webb for his coercive tactics towards his employees. This is denied, but immediately after, the company removes all involvement in politics, or at least more ostensible involvement in politics. Thank you very much indeed. This talk was recorded on the 14th of September 2013 at the National Railway Museum, York. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.